But it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's, not really no this is This is the best seat now. It's, it's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> cows, cows on runways. Cows. cows on runways. This is like bizarre, all right? Of course, this is this is very reminiscent of our favorite airport, uh, Dead Cow International in, uh, in uh, uh, Kansas. Now, apparently, this aircraft, um, th- this could have turned tragic, by the way. This is like not... In one level, I mean, it turned out okay, right? It's uh, so I'm except looking, for the cow. Well, you know, want, they were just, very, very careful to not talk about the cow. Um, this is yeah. from the DailyStar.co.uk, so it's a a, 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 a United Kingdom uh, website. Um, the Daily Star, apparently some sort of newspaper. This is their website. Plane skids off runway and crashes after landing on a cow! Exclamation point with the word cow in all our uppercase letters. Um, they even got a picture here. It, it didn't move out of the way. And, and, and the report comes to us from one Greg Heffer. If you can yes. believe that. Oh, see, now I didn't even notice that. Now I'm beginning to have doubts about how real this is. Uh, a Boeing 737-900 skidded off the runway after it came into contact with one of three animals wandering around the airport. Sadly, for the unaware grazer, the cow was killed under one of the jet's wheels. Um, the pilot told local media he could smell. Oh, jeez. I haven't read this in a couple of days. Could smell burning meat following the incident. The aircraft, apparently, them, now I'm paraphrasing, the aircraft kind of skidded uh, onto the grass. And, and and for those of you that go to the website and see the picture, it's a 37800. We know that. that. Just Jack misread that. That's all. Oh, really? Wait a minute. What is no, this? It's a, he mistyped. It's mistyped. Oh, the, the, the text describes it as a 900, but I see what you're saying, David. Okay. A bunch of pictures here of it kind of sitting out in the grass with uh, uh, various... Uh, uh, vehicles around it, uh, so uh, I guess all is well. They say nobody was no no humans were injured. <laughs> you know, and, and if they'd have just been able to keep the engines running longer and had some barbecue sauce, I was going to say, you know, I wonder what they told catering. <laughs> no, no, don't even go there. I know that joke. I know that joke. Here's what I want to ask you. So, how often does this kind of thing happen? Not cows. Well, first of all, did dead cow ever have a cow on the runway? Yeah. So it, that's. They, it's a true story. It was at the airport's original location, which is not where it is today. Uh-huh. Uh, it got condemned and moved for uh, some uh, uh, civics construction process. Uh-huh. Uh, they, they let uh, Earl Long's uh, dad reestablish the airport where it is now. In the old location, it was uh, surrounded by some uh, pasture land. Guys got some cows uh, on it that got through the fence one evening, and Mr. Long... Uh, as the story goes, tagged one of them with a Beach 18 on landing. I see. And who won that battle? Well, I, I think the uh, I think the answer in that is the story about how the farmer complained that uh, Mr. Long owed him for a cow, and Mr. Long responded, "Absolutely. How much is that going to be? And you know, I'll be sending you the bill for the airplane." Uh, so the cow lost the airplane suffered some damage but it lived to fly another day the cow on the other hand I think may have wound up uh, on the grill mm, well there you go Okay. now I don't know if that's what happened with this uh, this yeah. British uh, uh, cow but well, so- uh, sounds like um, someone got some fresh barbecue well there. I would yeah you know so uh, if they wanted it 
And, and by the way, on, so dead. We call it Dead Cow International. Um, what is it called officially? Westport. David? West, Westport, seventy-one kilo in your air nav. But but Dead Cow is not simply some sort of nickname that people like us use. I mean, that's on the sign out front, right? That's, that's just, on the sign out front. It's on the T-shirts. It's on the stationery. It's on the invoices yeah. somewhere. We have pictures. We do. This. There's a picture of, of, of the three of us standing uh, in front of the Dead Cow sign that time when yeah. we were all out there. for uh, yeah. a, a sign that got blown away by weather not long after that oh, and really? has been replaced twice more since. Ah, okay, glad to hear it. Glad to hear yeah. it. Um, have you ever but had... you won't ever see a 737 on the ground at Dead Cow unless it's come in on a flatbed. Have you... And, have, and goes out on one. Has either <laughs> of you ever tangled with a, a creature of any significance on the runway? I taxied the full length of 1836 at uh, Clark County once because of coyotes, but uh, they were smart enough to get out of the way before I turned around and came back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. And, Jeb, I know you, you routinely worry about deer on your runway. Yeah, I, I haven't. Um, I, one one evening I came in recently and, and landed at dusk and whatnot. Well, it was after dusk, actually, and was taxiing down my long driveway. And um, yeah. there were deer on either side, and uh, um, I wasn't, you know, they were scampering and getting out of the way and staying, you know, some distance in front of the airplane. I was genuinely concerned one of them might, you know, try to jump in front of the airplane, and that would be a bad thing. Yeah. But uh, For the airplane uh, they, as well as the deer. For the airplane as well as for the deer, and I don't really like venison, so I wasn't really looking Perfect. forward to that. Uh, but um, and I don't like uh, um, downtime either. Yeah. Um, but uh, that did not happen. I, I, you know, I've made low passes here at night before just to make sure there weren't any deer. Um, the only the only wildlife problem I've ever had in an airplane was birds. Yeah. Okay. You know, I, I did hit one several years ago, but uh, that I was never, nothing. I never hit any birds, and there were certainly plenty of birds. Well, when I was flying in California, there was actually a bird sanctuary of some sort right beside the airport, and uh, lots of birds. You know, because it was right at the edge of San Francisco Bay, so there was a mm-hmm. lot of a lot of seabirds and and shorebirds and things like that. Uh, oh, well, before landing at Lake Barkley State Park in Western Kentucky, they got a nice runway there, fuel and everything. At least they did. Uh, we were advised that it would be a good idea to buzz the runway because of two different flocks of wild turkey mm-hmm. about a half a mile apart. Right. Uh, a couple of times coming into dead cow at dusk, we buzzed for the Canada geese that were grazing on the grass on either side of the paved runway. Uh, but a bird's the only thing we've ever physically tangled with and had a was assaulted by a, a a very large hawk over Lookout Mountain in Tennessee uh, that dove at the nose plate and left scratches on the on the sail covering mm-hmm. and hit a sandpiper landing at uh, Meridian, Mississippi. Uh, poor little thing caught a gust, came back through the prop arc, and bounced off the windshield. Ouch! Uh, Filed a report and everything. I think I've told you guys this story before on on my very first flying lesson ever. All right. This was like, this might not have been my demo flight. So this might have been my first, you know, kind of official, you know, formal flying lesson. Um, we were taxiing out and, you know, he's showing me how to use the rudders to steer, you know, and, and he's about to let me, to, you know, uh, uh, operate the rudders during the, 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 the roll down the runway to, for the takeoff. He's flying the air, he's flying the yoke and the power and so forth. 
and and as we're you know kind of getting ready, one of the things he says, and so this is a Palo Alto airport in Palo Alto, California, and one of the things they had there, probably still do, is what we called ground squirrels. I really don't know what this creature really was. It was sort of like a big squirrel, right? It was like about the size of a small cat. It was a squirrel-like animal, and they lived in burrows along ground groundhogs. We call them. We, no, we call them. We call them armadillos here. Yeah, I don't think there were either of those two things, but whatever it was, uh, okay. it was like a big squirrel. All right. And they lived in burrows along the, the, in the, in the grass and the dirt to the, to the sides of the runway. And, uh, and, and one of the things he was talking to me about is, as he was doing this first lesson, he was talking about how, you know, you always have to fly the airplane. He says, he says, if you're rolling down the runway and you see some sort of creature run out in front of you, you've got to realize that if you could swerve and hurt yourself or kill yourself or, you know, something bad could happen, you need to really keep going straight down the runway and, and, and not, try and you know do anything outrageous if you, if some one, some creature goes out on the runway and i said i said okay that makes sense i i understand that i can i can do that and so we taxied out into position added power you know and and we're and we're rolling down the runway all right and and i'm telling you that very same time all right one of these ground squirrels runs out onto the runway like half like way down the runway i had plenty of time to see it and and it's like stops right in the middle of the runway. And my instructor, <laughs> my instructor looks at me like as if I'm going to kill us both, you know. And, and I look at him. I said, I see it. I'm fine. It's okay. All right. And so I'm just continuing to track the center of the runway thinking, all right, chances are we're going to miss this guy. All right. And, and we reached the guy and whack. All right. It caught uh, probably one of the main gear. And, uh, and I just kept, you know, flying the airplane and we, you know, rotated and climbed out. And as we were climbing out, the instructor got on the radio to the tower, you know, and said, tower, you know, be advised there's a there's a carcass on the runway now. And the controller says, all right, I'll send somebody out for it. Would um, somebody dress it, skin it and hang yeah, it in the meat locker, I don't know please? About that part. But uh, but so my very, very one of my very, very first flights ever. All right. I had a creature run out on the runway and we killed the pool. And we have a new that. nickname, Roadkill Hodgson. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <There we go. laughs> hey, welcome, folks, to Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm coming to you here from UCAP World Headquarters in uh, exotic Epping, New Hampshire. I'm here with my two good friends. Uh, Dave Higdon's here, talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. How you doing? I'm doing great, Roadkill. How about yourself? <laughs> okay. You made it home from Oshkosh, I take it. Yeah, at least last time I checked. Uh was a little slower on the rebound this year for uh, unknown reasons, but we're back in the swing of things now, and life is lovely. It's uh, it, it's not even raining today. Well, okay, has it been raining? Really? It's like it's well, we've had uh, over nine inches in the last uh, fourteen days, and we had over fifteen inches the month before, and. We're suddenly low, no, no longer in a drought. Yeah, well, you know, but climate change is a fiction. Don't worry about it. And right. Also, and also here is Jeb Burnside talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. How are you doing, Jeb? Doing fine. Also uh, almost recovered. Um, it is not raining here today also. I wish, we, wish it was. We could use a little bit more. You, um, after all the rain you've had, you well, still you want know, more. Basically, since I got back, it's been dry. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so yeah, we could use a you know a couple hours of of, um, of a drizzle. Mm-hmm. Now speaking of which, last time we all spoke was uh, on on the uh, on the uh, actually on the on the ramp there at uh, Weeks Hangar at Oshkosh, right. and you were getting ready to launch uh, for your trip home. Um, right. And and I actually know I've I've spoken to you since then, but uh, right. it all went well, huh? You had a good nice yeah, trip no home problems. Um, Cincinnati even let me overfly their Brava, which is you know unheard of in my book. Oh, <gasps> I know. Did you literally overfly it, or were you literally overflew the top their, of it? No, literally overflew their Bravo. Um, it's so nice of them when they acknowledge they don't have authority over certain. Well, that's what I was going to say. But I was IFR. Oh, okay. They oh. could have. They could have ah. sent me. They could have sent me to St. Louis, and only God knows what St. Louis would have done. But um, uh, <laughs> sent you to Denver. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, where, where I would have smacked into something out there, but. No, um, six plus thirty um, had two hours worth of gas when I when I landed. I didn't. I landed where I could get gas, mm-hmm. um, um, but still had two hours worth of gas on board when I landed. And uh, a couple of little deviations in the Florida area, but nothing more than ten degrees uh, left to right to you know dodge some weather and, mm-hmm. and uh, mostly smooth and uh, had a good day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now you launched out of uh, Oshkosh just about noontime, as no action. It was almost. It was um, twenty five, twenty six after afternoon. Twelve, and and you and you landed at, in down in Florida just around sunset. I guess is that exactly. Do I have that exactly. right? So yeah, so, yeah. Man, I'm telling you, personal aviation. What a concept, huh? Well, it is. You know, I I think of it as a weather modification machine. I know you changed <laughs> from, from from Wisconsin's weather to Florida's yeah, weather. Yeah, exactly. You get you get in it. You close the door. You manipulate the controls for a few hours. You open the door. The weather's changed. Well, there you go. That's that's pretty profound. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to give him profound. It's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting. Okay, it's amateur found. No, 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 no. no, no, no. You know, there, you have to get into relative physics, of course, yeah. before you really start to understand that. But. I see. Okay. Well, it's like hitting a deer on a runway. You know, it's going to cost you some dough. So just Unless, prior, I know, David. I'm just going to let it go. I, I've, I've learned to just let these things roll off. You know, I just I, I get another some bone in my head that won't let me do that. <laughs> So just before uh, we all kind of you know went into the Oshkosh thing, um, the big big aviation story happened. Um, there was another uh, landing accident. Uh, we talked about the San Francisco landing accident uh, about a month ago now. My gosh! Um, but uh, then uh, an aircraft landed at what was it, LaGuardia? Um, a seven thirty seven, I think it was. Uh, it turns yep. out it landed on its nose wheel first and collapsed the nose wheel. And uh, and hilarity ensued, and uh, I mean everybody was fine, so we can make a little bit of a joke about it. But uh, um, what do we know anything? I mean, and it's been a while, so things are known, and and listeners have probably already read well, articles about this. But we know one thing concretely. What's that? You, it's very possible to overload the nose gear on a seven thirty six. And quickly too. That was the other thing I learned in Doesn't that first. Much. It was the other thing I learned in that first flying lesson all those years ago. It's like don't land on the nose wheel. Um, it, so have they? Had Jeb? Have you had a chance to read up on this at all? Or, or, is there any information about what happened? I heard some I, weird I really story have, about I, how the the, yeah, the captain took over at the very last moment. Or well, something. there's. The NTSB uh, did publish um, some material. Yeah, here's a press release from the NTSB. It is dated August 6th. Um, 13-year captain with um, – I'm sorry. The captain had been a Southwest employee for 13 years, been a captain for six years. 
12,000 hours, uh, 7,000 of which were as uh, pick and 737s. Um, first officer, been with the company about 18 months, 5,200 total hours, uh, 4,000 of those as pick on 737s, and 1,100 hours uh, as FO on the 73. This was the first trip the two had flown together and was the second leg of the trip. The FO had uh, previous ex- operational experience at LGA, including six flights in 2013. Captain having had, had flown into LGA twice, one of which was the accident flight, uh, and served as uh, pilot monitoring. Uh, I don't know what uh, – pilot monitoring for both flights into LGA. The crew reported uh, – let's see, the weather in New York caused the accident flight to enter a holding pattern for about 15 minutes. The crew reported they saw the airport from about 5, 10 miles out, and the airplane was on speed, course, and glide slope down to about two to 400 feet. The crew reported that below 1,000 feet, the tailwind on the approach was 11 knots. They also reported that the wind on the runway was a headwind of about 11 knots. Um, okay. Proceeded okay. on the approach, uh, and when at a point below 400 feet... There was an exchange of control of the airplane, and the captain became the pilot flying and made the landing. The jetliner touched down on the runway nose first, followed by collapse of the nose gear. The airplane was substantially damaged. Wouldn't seem to me that that's a good procedure. I don't know. Well, a lot of people are, are questioning, or I won't say questioning, but uh, you know, some of the headlines were, you know, uh, pilots in the LGA crash exchanged controls, or, or pilot took over uh, uh, from co-pilot just before, you know, da-da-da-da-da. Um, you know, I don't find that to be a big deal. I don't think that's the cause of this particular episode, okay, uh, especially if it was pre-planned, and why why it occurred is is a question. Yeah. Did they plan this as part of their approach briefing? Uh, maybe the captain needed to get a you know the captain didn't have any um, uh, hands-on landings apparently at LaGuardia. Um, maybe he wanted to get one. Well, this is you know certainly a, you know a, a way to make an entrance. Yeah. But uh, I, it really depends. I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't have enough information. David, it sounds like you're you're sighing back there. Bit, yeah. Well, it, it's, it's it does seem like a logical thing to take over the airplane if you need to log a landing at the airport. Get it in your logbook and and uh, you know get that first one under your belt, so to speak. Four hundred feet seems like a, a, an odd time to do it. It's simply from the perspective that you're usually supposed to be in a sterile cockpit and a stabilized approach by that point, and that's going to be at the normal descent rate, maybe 30 seconds from touchdown, which is plenty of time to adjust the you know power and, and, and pitch angle and all that stuff if you needed to. I keep wondering, though, whether they didn't fly into a pretty strong shear layer well, that's what it sounds like with that tailwind headwind with, thing. If in fact right, the headwind tailwind change uh, or differences existed, as uh, as the crew said, uh, at some point in there, there's going to be a shear layer of some uh, magnitude where the two rivers of moving air meet, you know, where they're going in different directions. And the closer you are to the ground when that happens, the more uncomfortable it generally can be. Yeah, and it seems so, to me. 
And it would seem to me, you know, based on my vast experience, um, that that that's exactly the time you don't want to be getting the feel of the airplane, having just taken the yoke. I, I don't know. Is well, that- and, you know, you're going to be seeing a, a, a pretty uh, noticeable change in the picture through the windshield. Uh, you're motoring along at a, a reference speed with the bug set there and the airplane set up on it, getting pushed along by 11 knots of tail. And all of a sudden, your ground speed's going to slow down. Your progress is going to need some power and to adjust to get to the same touchdown spot when you go from that tailwind to a headwind. And sometimes, you know, we get this instinct that if we just push it down, it'll go a little faster, and then we can overcome that with a good rotation just before we get to the runway. Uh, I've seen guys do it. On uh, the arrivals, the mass arrivals at Oshkosh, I've seen guys do it just on the touch and goes out at uh, the local airport where they don't do the best job of adjusting from mm-hmm. the tailwind on downwind to the headwind on upwind right. or on final when they're doing a 180 through to final. Right. So that's, it's that's it, pretty- it's a goosey point to be at. Yeah, right. It's a goosey point. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Of course, we don't know that that's what happened here. Uh, yeah, time, time will tell, um, you know, what, what actually happened on this particular one. Um, but, and, and we'll pay attention to it and, and, and you know, report back as, as more information it, comes out. But It, but it wouldn't be the first time that a uh, significant change in headwind, tailwind component uh, on short final fouled up a guy. Yeah, yeah. On a much more tragic note, um, and this is a very, very new story. It only happened this morning as we're recording this episode. But a, a, a UPS uh, Airbus 300 crashed. I, I, I'm having a real hard time getting any information about this. Jeb, I don't know if you have better sources than I do, but uh, I, was I it actually on final for this yeah, runway? It was on approach. That's what um, I know, but I don't know what that ex- means exactly. Was he on Well, final? it was just outside the airport property, so, so we can presume from based on what we know right now that it was final approach. Um, the NTSB um, was going to hold a briefing as we began this podcast. Oh, okay. Um, so right now we don't know much at all except uh, both of the crew were killed. Yeah. Which is surprising. Not that... I think I know what you're going to say. Go ahead. Be- because there are photos out there of the crash site showing a relatively intact cockpit. Exactly my observation as well. That was interesting. The rear half of the aircraft appeared to be pretty destroyed. Pretty well screwed up. But the and front fire, half, yeah, and, the, and it does appear that the that the the very very front of the aircraft may have you know kind of broke its back, if you will, just mm-hmm. behind the cockpit. Right. But you're right. The cockpit appeared to be relative. I mean, you know, at least from the outside, it was not crushed or damaged or destroyed or burned or anything like that. Let's, let's, let's clarify this a little bit. The, the cockpit windows and the roof of the cabin, roof of the cockpit, et cetera, are intact. The, uh, the nose is, is kind of smashed in a little bit. But this part of the airplane, I'd say 20, 30 feet, the front part of the airplane, is basically all that resembles an airplane yeah. to, uh, according to a... Uh, a bird's eye view image uh, here on this is on the SF Gate uh, uh, website. The wings are were separated from the aircraft uh, and are probably a good 150 feet away from that front portion of the cabin. 
um, it looks like the um, part of the tail, perhaps, um, is out there with um, uh, with the wings. It's you know I, I hate to you know even bring it up, but this was a cargo flight, and I kind of wonder if maybe you know there was an in-flight fire. That did cross my mind too. We, I, I don't think there was any any evidence that we've seen about that yet. But it, it you definitely think well, about no, this. There, there, there was there hasn't been any evidence. Too is too quick. This happened right. about you know oh six hundred or so um, Birmingham time this morning, um, and uh, of course the NTSB is saying I'm, I'm sitting here clicking refresh on Google News trying to find uh, something yeah. new from from the NTSB briefing, but I don't see anything yet. Yeah, yeah I'm doing likewise and, and also not seeing anything yet. So, anyways, maybe by the time we finish recording this podcast, more news will have come up, but uh, this is an interesting one. I mean, they're all kind of interesting from an intellectual, academic level, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of keep an eye on this one, too. But, uh, yeah, anyways, very, very sad. Yeah, very, very, very sad, and, and of course, um, much different... Uh, from the LaGuardia crash we were talking about, in that no one lost their lives. In this one, someone did, and yeah. uh, we have to keep that in mind. But, you know, yeah. And, and time will tell, but, you know, it, the, the common, I mean, I don't know, one possible common theme here is a lot of airplanes landing short these days or having having incidents on la- landing incidents, I guess we'll call it. You know, it's kind of a funny streak. Well, it's actually a streak that started to manifest itself a couple of years ago. Uh, loss of control accidents on on landing and second on takeoff. Uh, there had been a little spike of them in business turbine operations. Uh, we're starting to see it now in airline operations. And there was some theory, some thinking that the, uh, the lack of regular hand flying is playing into some of this, and as the uh, airlines try to encourage their guys to turn off the flight director more often, and or flight management system, and follow the flight director indicators, that uh, they're not as good at it as they used to be. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, we'll we'll follow this one too, and maybe we'll report back as time goes on. And now a special report. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. The comments you hear do not necessarily represent the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. And that's the way it is. This next story, this comes out of the uh, of the midair ca- crash of, I don't know whether it was a year ago or it was a while back. It was t- in May of, of 12. Okay. Late, late May of 2012. Two, two personal aircraft, one flown by a, a, an NTSB staffer and the other flown by an FAA staffer, collided in midair and, uh, and there were fatalities and, and the uh, the the um, administrator or the de- 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 the uh, sec dot or somebody went to the Canadian NTSB and said, could you please investigate this for us? And apparently Canada has said that, uh, I don't know, that we need to do more stuff to avert midair collisions. Uh, is that what they're saying? And what do you think? Well, I'm reading, uh, I'm now reading from the uh, Transportation Safety Board of Canada's website. 
And uh, I'll read a quote. This accident shows once again, quote, this accident shows once again that the see and avoid principle is inadequate for preventing collisions between aircraft flying under visual flight rules, VFR, said John Lee, TSB's investigator in charge. Additional defenses must be put in place to prevent mid-air collisions among VFR aircraft. What, what, do, what, what does you that mean, additional I defenses? I don't know. I didn't say. Uh, the, the word defenses is used again later in the, uh, in the press release. Does Canada um, have different rules about, you know, flying VFR and flying with or without flight following and all that kind of stuff? Is it Not to my knowledge. So, so they don't have any different defenses there. I'm not pointing a finger here. I'm just trying to figure out what it is he might be thinking about. Well, the last paragraph of this press release reads the, as follows. A meaningful improvement to the ability to see and avoid other VFR aircraft may require onboard technology capable of directly alerting pilots to the proximity of conflicting traffic. Right. A number of viable and economical onboard alerting systems exist or are under development. Had one or both of these aircraft been equipped with some form of the technology, the risk of collision would have been reduced. So I don't know. What do you think? I, 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 I don't know. I'm just, well, okay. This is a puzzling. This is, we, we, had a, we had a discussion offline. We had a discussion offline uh, on this um, amongst the three of us a few days ago. And I think Dave nailed it. I said, you know, mid-air collisions are a very, very, very small portion of all general aviation accidents. Um, I think, you know, I think the TSB is overreacting here a little bit. Mm-hmm. David? Well, I, I, Jeb is correctly uh, uh, observes my, my attitude and my, my feelings about this. I think what the Transportation Safety Board of Canada did was just follow through on their procedures, mm-hmm. follow through on their process, and issue the same kind of conclusion that they issued 2006-2007 uh, over a mid-air accident it, that occurred in Canada between two GA airplanes, which is to say... Gee, see and avoid doesn't work very well, and wouldn't it be nice if everybody had this equipment? Uh, the answer down here, at least, is that we're in the we're, we're in the midst of a system going online that will provide that that linkage, that heads up, if you will, by utilizing the uh, uh, the the software that's available to take ADSB in traffic information and tell you orally, wow, there's traffic 1,000 feet above you, five miles away, uh, 120 degrees off your nose. That's a, that's a big help, having a voice call out and say, gee, it's right here. Now, we have independent standalone systems to do that. Uh, you can buy a really nice one for about ten grand. That's got a range of about eight miles from the nice folks up at Avidyne. Uh You can stick it in an air. It'll wire it up to your intercom system. You put the antenna on the top and the bottom, and it basically adds a transponder to ping other airplanes' transponders and tells you what's out there close by. Yeah, but uh, you uh, you say ten thousand dollars like it's no big deal. No, I don't say ten thousand dollars like it's no big deal. I say ten thousand dollars like it's ten thousand freaking dollars. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, ADSBN, which can be had certified in in and out in one package nowadays for about twenty five hundred bucks plus install. Uh, 
will tell you the same thing by importing the traffic reports from other ADSB airplanes and from the FAA's f- feed from the ground stations and directly from uh, 1090 transponder uh, signals, 1090 megahertz. They, they receive all of it. They put it on a display, and that's where it starts to get pricey because you've got to have a display for this to work. Well, more and more people have displays. They're going to go this way. But they're saying that seeing a void doesn't work. You'd be really smart to get this, and it wouldn't hurt our feelings if the regulatory authorities said maybe everybody should have this within the next so many years. Because we're putting in the system that's going to make it possible that it's going to be a cheap step up at some point. Uh, no, it, it, the active traffic stuff that's available from uh, Avidyne and Garmin and uh, Honeywell, uh, it's not cheap equipment, uh, not by a long shot. Uh, it doesn't require a display. It just requires an audio hookup, although a display makes it really helpful for visualizing what's out there. Uh, and it, that $10,000 has been the entry-level price for this for about 30 years, ever since it was the Ryan system that uh, detected traffic. So it's gone through a lot of evolutions, a lot better now. They're a lot more available. And it's still not cheap. But if you've sat in an airplane, piston, turboprop, jet, where that voice came on and showed you an icon on a screen that says traffic, 3,000 high, this bearing, this distance. Uh, you still may not see the damn thing, but at least you've got a heads up on where to look and uh, a little extra lead time on maybe I should turn right about now. Yeah, okay. He's going this way. I'm going to go down. He's going up. I'm going to go down. Uh, he's going down. I'm going to go up and turn away from him. Uh, even if you never see him, that's one more step. But I don't think they're adding anything new to the well. It's a repetition of what we've seen before. Yeah. Anyways. I just sent, I just sent you guys two more links. The, the second of the two links I just sent is to the TSB's full report. Okay. Anything uh, on, particularly on interesting? In Note that Potomac radar, Potomac Tracon, um, had radar identified both of these uh, aircraft and indeed was generating a conflict alert at the time. Uh, but the controller uh, was distracted by uh, giving services to some IFR aircraft and was unable to issue a traffic alert. Oh, my. <clears throat> That just elevates it to even more tragic. Yeah, it does. It does. And I'm reading some of the fine print here too. The the, the uh, both aboard the pi- the Piper uh, were killed. The um, uh, it was a pilot and flight instructor, um, and um, the uh, Beechcraft Bonanza pilot who was solo. I'm sorry, I got this wrong. The pilot of the Piper uh, was solo. Uh, pilot and flight instructor in the Bonanza. Um, Beechcraft broke up in flight, and the pilot and flight instructor were fatally injured. Pilot of the Piper conducted a forced landing in a, in a pasture, okay. uh, sustained injuries, um, but doesn't characterize those injuries. Big mess. So, big, big mess. mess yeah. Big mess. Big mess. So, um, on, on a, I, there's a couple a couple of, of morals here. Even if you're getting flight following, that doesn't mean 
that you're immune from um, yeah. uh, having a traffic conflict for both human reasons as well as legal reasons as well as um, just all kinds of reasons. Um, is is seeing a void uh, outdated? I don't think so. Uh, I, I genuinely don't think so. Um, yeah, especially out in the you know most of the country. I mean, especially in most of the country, this this accident occurred in the vicinity of uh, two airports I know very well: Culpeper, Virginia, and Winchester. I'm sorry, not Winchester, Warrington, Virginia. Yeah, uh, and um, yeah, that can be busy airspace. It's outside the Bravo. It's outside the Cifra. Um, there's, you know, some popular airports nearby. There's some mountains just to the west. Um, it's a very, um, popular, um, uh, destination, uh, as a destination, um, because there's a lot going on at those airports. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're happening places as it were. Yeah. Uh, and I, they're very, they're both very pleasant airports to visit, um, and cheap gas on occasion too. But, um... Uh, you know, this is just one of those, you know, things that uh, um, we have to. It's a risk that we have to uh, uh, have to manage uh, exactly. when we fly yeah, when I, we fly personal airplanes. Yeah, yeah. Now uh, NTSB. Um, this is a, another story that goes back to a little bit since we've been kind of out of the loop for Oshkosh. But July fourteenth, um, I'm looking at a general aviation news story. Uh, NTSB concerned about go arounds. Uh, the National Transportation Safety Board wants the FAA to modify its procedures for directing traffic around major airports. This is to reduce the possibility of mid-air collisions when a landing aircraft must conduct a go-around. So, I'm not sure what to think about. When I first read this story, I, th I was thinking they were talking about, you know, our kind of airplanes and, you know, saying maybe we shouldn't go around as much as we do, but I don't think that's what they're talking about at all. They're They're talking about... They did a study, apparently, of uh, of aircraft doing go-arounds at airports like Kennedy and Vegas McCarran and uh, um, Charlotte and, and, and those kinds of things. And these were airliners or big aircraft doing go-arounds, which I'm not clear on the – in this particular instance, I'm not clear on the difference between a go-around and a missed approach. Can you – Missed approach is an IFR procedure. Uh, go-around is a VFR procedure. How's that? So a go – so in, you, do you believe that in this particular case they're talking about, you know, like an aircraft's on short final, they can see the runway, and they decide for some reason to go around just like yes. I would? Okay. Yes. Um, and, and they're also talking, if you read the content of this pretty closely, they're talking about the number of instances where pilots fail to go around when they should have. Mm -hmm. And then they have a loss of control accident and they run off the runway. I see. Okay. Well, now, so if, a, if an airliner does a go around on, you know, short final, mid final, something like that, um, what procedure typically are they expected to follow? I mean, when I'm in my when I'm in my Cessna, you know, I mean, I basically fly a pattern and go around, and assuming there's not other traffic in the pattern, you know, I just kind of do what I do. What is it? And, and I know when when you guys are flying FR and you do a missed approach, there's a whole procedure spelled out. Right. Where? How does it, it work if you do a go around in an airliner? It depends. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> I, I the hate airport to, on one thing. It, it, yeah, it depends on the airport, it depends on the weather, et cetera, et cetera. Let's presume that we're going into San Francisco on a sunny day uh, about a month ago. Uh, and we're flying a 777, um, and we're obviously IFR. Uh, we're on a long final, um, and we decide to go around. 
uh, first thing we do is hit the go around uh, button on the throttles, which um, I would presume in this airplane uh, powers up the engines to take off go around thrust toga and uh, pitches the airplane for best rate of climb. Um, and then from there on, you know, we've got a checklist and we've got to clean up the airplane, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, someone hollers to ATC, oh, hey, we're going around. And ATC is like, oh, crap. Uh, okay, sure. fly, yeah. fly runway heading, climb and maintain X number of thousands of feet, uh, contact um, uh, approach on such and such a frequency. What's going to happen is they're going to get vectored back around for another try. Uh, they're not going to have to shoot an approach in, in this case because it was, it was visual conditions. Um, and, but they will be worked into the flow to come back and take another look at the runway. Uh, if it was IFR, if it was a true missed approach and a missed approach procedure was, was uh, called for and executed, they would follow, initially at least, the published miss. Mm-hmm. ATC might change that based on traffic or, or based on weather or based on, uh, um, you know, I don't know, uh, the time of day, uh, based on other factors. Um, but basically the same thing would happen. They would get vectored back probably to another approach, uh, whether it was going to be an ILS or, or GPS or RNAV, whatever, and, and uh, get another look at the runway eventually also. The VFR procedure would be somewhat quicker unless there was just, you know, sure. just, a, sure. just a flock of other aircraft inbound behind them. Uh, the IFR procedure is is more published than uh, right. uh, and, or and more defined it, than a VFR. Is it also the case that un, under the IFR situation, um, aren't the controllers protecting the missed approach procedure area? Absolutely, absolutely. You know? they yeah. are. So, so it, you have more confidence that there are no airplanes wandering around up in that airspace at that time. Well, and when, maybe it sounds like that's the issue here: is that they aren't protecting the go-around airspace the way they protect the missed airspace? Is that accurate? I'm not, I'm not sure I understood that. You broke up a little bit there. Oh, sorry. So, so we know that the controllers are tasked with protecting the airspace that might be needed for, for a missed approach. Right. Do, do they also protect a, some airspace for the event that an airliner needs a VFR go-around? Not in the same way, because yeah. we're talking about the difference between shooting an instrument approach and going missed in instrument conditions, uh, as opposed to you're on an instrument flight plan, but it's VMC, and you're flying the visual into SFO. Uh, they still have all that traffic out there on IFR flight plans, and they're still supposed to maintain separation, uh, just as they would if it was IMC. Uh, the difference is they're going to tell the pilots that they've got traffic here and there, and when the pilot acknowledges that they've got an eyeball on that traffic, that changes their uh, requirements a little bit, that now they can get them closer than IMC separation standards. Uh, there's another element in play here on these go on this go around question and what the FAA has been talking about recently, and that's the fact that some pilots hesitate to go around because they've experienced conflicts inside the airport perimeter or inside the airport traffic area from arrivals or on other runways or uh, airplanes uh, uh, also going around from other runways. Uh, they put them in close proximity in a near miss situation. Uh, and they think that that's factoring into some pilot's decision to not go around when really they should. Right. 
I don't think that I don't, that doesn't, wouldn't be any kind of concern of mine whatsoever. Uh, yeah, I would hope it wouldn't be mine either. Yeah, it wouldn't be mine at ninety nine percent of the airports that I fly out of. Right. So but what I'm hearing executing is executing a executing a go around when somebody's just been cleared for departure and is in fact departing from an adjacent runway. Uh, I don't need permission to go around. If I start to go around. I will wind up in conflict with somebody like that departing from an intersecting runway. Uh, then the question becomes, what do the controllers do about it? Well, that's my question. Wouldn't it well, make sense? Well, I think that's wrong, uh, Dave. Go ahead, Jim. You're not gonna you're not gonna be in conflict uh, with traffic departing an intersecting runway if you choose to go around. The, the controllers are not going to clear traffic to depart an intersecting runway if you're on short final. Um, they're going to they're going to keep that airspace in front of both airplanes relatively clear. Mm-hmm. If it's a parallel set of runways, then yeah, you could see um, traffic um, departing as you start your go around. But again, that's a visual uh, procedure, at least um, on this day in, in San Francisco. Right. Uh, that would have been a visual procedure. Now, you've got a different situation where, let's say, for example, you're at Dulles um, with two fairly widely spaced runways, uh, and it's an IFR day, and uh, someone is uh, cleared for takeoff uh, on one runway, and just as you come up on Mr. Proach Point on the other runway and you call Mr. Proach, well, you've got two airliners who are um, certainly within three miles of each other, uh, IFR, uh, and, and going into the Merck uh, again uh, for one of them and then initially for the other one. Um, that's a different situation, and what they're going to do is uh, one of them is going to get a divergent heading immediately. Sure. Uh, uh, fly, you know, such such a heading, mainly, I guess, 30 degrees left or right uh, off, off runway heading to give them some separation immediately. And I'm sure that that's not something that a controller is going to get dinged on uh, for having a deal, um, loss of separation deal, right. um, uh, as they might otherwise in, in a different environment. But, yeah, I mean, they, we, we can sit down and parse the, the uh, air traffic controller's handbook and things like that to come up with the answer. But basically, they have thought of this before. Right. Wouldn't it make sense for there to be... A, a published procedure for every runway that receives airliners of what you do in a go in a, in a visual go around, just so that they aren't making this up every single well, time. Well, there kind of sort of is. You go to the, the the pilot's operating handbook or the ops specs, and basically it's like fire a wallet and pull the nose up. Well, <laughs> except that so your example is a good one because. In in the in the example that I think you're talking about here, that particular runway at San Francisco, you can't take off straight ahead. There's a big hill right there, so you got to turn left or right, yeah. and and uh, and and to to be able to brief in advance what what's going to happen if we have to do a visual go around. I don't know. Might maybe that's what the NTSB is asking for here. I don't know. Um, interesting stuff. Anyways, moving on to uh, thank to you the, to the definitely more sublime here. Um, story I came across. This is a, a Behringer is a company that makes air pl- air cra- airplane aircraft parts, and they they make wheels and brakes and wheel assemblies and bearings and they claim I've, that they have a no ground loop tailwheel. 
They claim that they have a tailwheel that's engineered in such a way that its physics will resist, if not prevent, the aircraft ground looping. I bet I can ground loop. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Are either of you familiar with this little piece of engineering here? Only because I edited the story for AirVenture today. Okay, well then, what is it? What's the deal? Well, it's a it's it's a double hinged tailwheel with a locking mechanism for part of it. Uh, and the way it's supposed to work is where the tailwheel would get loose and let the airplane spin in, into what we know as the classic ground loop. Mm-hmm. This doesn't let it break loose and maintains the connection with the uh, rudder pedals. So all you have to do is not let it go offset. But if you need the rudder, uh, the the tailwheel to break loose, for example, if you want to do a, a taxi, or you want to spin around the inside wheel on your main gear. Mm-hmm. There's a separate unlocking mechanism that will let it unlock and do that while it still maintains positive control through the rudder pedals. Okay. So now has this actually been used? Is this I would imagine this is some sort of STC kind of thing, right? This is you're not going to put this on your champ and and just go for it. Yeah. If it's a PMA part, I believe it is. What's PMA? Uh PMA parts manufacturer approval so that it would be a a um it could be a replacement part for a uh, a mall tailwheel or or something like that. But it's a um, very different tailwheel. It's a very different tailwheel and that's why I'm I'm coming up with with some pause. Probably does have to be SDC. Yeah, okay. Um Interesting stuff. I know how to solve the problem. You know how you get. You know how you do away with the uh, with the 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 ground loops on a on a tailwheel aircraft is you need the main gear to be castering. Okay, if the main gear rotated, then it would resist. It it would it would function more like a, a nose wheel aircraft. You guys are taking me seriously, aren't you? No. Okay. Good. <laughs> All right. No, I, I, I've pushed. Uh, but wasn't there such an airplane once that had castering wheels on all four wheels? Yeah, directional control was way more work yeah. than it should yeah. have been. Yeah, okay, all right. I guess I can understand that. Well, no, but you have the but the but the the tailwheel in that case is locked straight ahead. Yeah, lock the tailwheel and caster the mains. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The reason it wouldn't work, the reason it wouldn't work, just for starters, is that you could never build a robust enough castering wheel to take the the, exactly. the, the, uh, Side the punishment that a, yeah. that a main gear gets, and uh, um, so that's another thing. So, well, just you know, just land on the tailwheel. Yeah, right. That can work. It is the opposite of of um, uh, Southwest at LaGuardia. Yeah. Perfect. Exactly Be right. Both. There we go. We here at the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast are very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just $10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. Thank you. David, way back in April, you flew an airplane... Back right. in Sun and Fun, you flew a cool airplane, and you couldn't talk about it because you flew it for one of your other publications, but that story's out now. What's, what publication did that appear in? That's in EAA's uh, digital online publication, The Experimenter. Uh-huh. And what airplane uh, did you fly? 
that was just aircraft's super stole. Uh-huh. And the story and the photos in all their glory are online now at the link that mm. you'll see in the show notes. Uh, and it was kind of fun. I got to assign somebody to fly this airplane at, at Oshkosh for the show daily. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, look, whatever you do, don't be afraid of the airplane. It's easy to fly, and you almost can't screw it up. Now, and it came back all grins. I, I would imagine. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about this. So, for people not not familiar, um, uh, this is and I'm this is I'm going to say this kind of unofficially, casually. Um, it's son of Highlander. All right, this is Highlander was the airplane that became famous uh, from the YouTube videos where the guy was landing it out in the middle of nowhere and he did the dead stick takeoff and all those kinds of shots and he was just doing some amazing short field stuff in the Highlander, also a just aircraft um, uh, airplane. This is basically the same fuselage. Yeah. With an all-new landing gear design, yeah, uh, with about a 22-inch stroke uh, uh, gas strut uh, hooked to a very robust triangle assembly, a uh, pivoting strut on, on the main uh, gear. You mean on yep. the main gear yep. and a great big leaf spring with a uh, with a uh, shock absorber on the tail wheel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in this particular case, the airplane had about I think they were 22-inch, or I'm sorry, 26-inch wheels. Yeah. Uh, wheels and tires, great big balloon things. Uh, the wing is different from the Highlander in that it's got fully automatic slats. Right. Leading edge pivot devices. in and out. Yeah. Leading edge devices and huge flaps, huge ailerons, uh, really nimble in the air. Uh, will probably make a good 90, 91 knots on the uh, 100-horse Rotax 912 that powers it. That's all it has, really. Yeah, but it it will get you off the ground in zero wind in about three airplane lengths and climbing like a homesick bird. Yeah, and but but the really dramatic part is the way it lands, right? Yeah, you basically set the power up for about a... Uh, for about a uh, uh, 55 knot approach, you pull the stick back, hold it, let the slats come out, and just let it descend to the ground at 500 feet a minute, and it touches down and stops. Mm-hmm. Now, now and, I heard stories about it coming down even faster than that. Is that? Yeah, if you want to be mean and cruel, uh, you, you can bring it down about seven, eight hundred feet a minute, and it still just squats. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't see any real reason to abuse the airplane like that because it doesn't really shorten up the landing roll. Any. Oh, okay. And, and the landing roll is pretty dramatic. I saw some video of one of these things landing, and and it lands in like a couple of lengths. Or I mean, it, it, I was going to say if you if you roll more than two airplane lengths, then you must have missed the brake pedals. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting. It's a very specialized airplane. I guess I would say I would imagine it's not for everyone. But if you want that kind of an airplane, that seems pretty cool. Well, if you want an airplane that can go into baseball diamonds, little league baseball diamonds, and and, and Jeb get likes, out again. And Jeb usually like at this point likes to say, "Yeah, once, but <laughs> not yeah, in this, this case. This one will get you back out again." I would I would I would believe that. Yeah. And even shorter fields, if you don't mind folding the wings up and hauling it out behind a truck. Well, that's that. Then, then we're talking about one. that's cheating. Yeah, right. That's cheating. Anyway, so, uh, take a look. Uh, you know, poison pen letters, tips, and uh, additions to the tip jar are always welcome. Yeah. So this story is, uh, of course, we'll put a link in the show notes. But let's see if I can find it here. Oh, it's a funny link. 
How do you find this really? Let's see. Experimenter.epubxp.com slash I slash 149316 slash 14. That's pretty ugly. I don't know. Let's see. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how to find this here. Let me try something here. Experimenter uh, Superstall Higdon. And uh, yes. (laughs) Well. Yes, perfect. There we go. Okay, if you Google, if you Google the words "experimenter," "superstall," "Higdon," you will uh, find a link to this story. And uh, how about that? Yeah, huh? it was almost as much fun as the crop duster flew at Oshkosh. Yeah, so. well, and, and in about six months, you'll be able to tell us about that one, right? It's uh, oh no, you wrote about that already. I was right? going to say that's in, that's been in print. Two that's weeks already ago. in print. Yeah. Okay. What was that like? Uh, that was the. I, I've never been that close to the ground going that fast in an airplane that big. Right. So this is a big one of these big ag ag you know application aircraft. This um, was the uh, uh, Thresh five ten G or five ten Golf. Yeah, turboprop. Turboprop. It's got the GE H eighty engine in it. I believe it's the first certificated application. Uh, it'll hold more than its empty weight in chemicals and fuel. Empty weight's about 4,700 pounds. Gross weight is about 10.6. And so you went out for a demo flight, and and you actually kind of went out into the pastures of Wisconsin and did mock... Um, yeah, we we fake flights. Passes. We fake dusting runs uh, so close to the crops in the fields, and they were real crops in real fields that I could look outside the cockpit and see the leaves turning upside down as we went by Man. <laughs> from the vortices coming off the from the air coming off the bottom of the wing. Now I'm assuming you weren't flying at this particular moment. Not for those runs, no. Uh, I could see the trees get disconcertingly large looking over the pilot's shoulder really sharp guy terry humphreys uh with thrush aircraft uh lots of time in crop dusters teaches it and that's what this airplane is for is to teach crop dusting uh the two seats you put the student in the front seat the instructor does it from the back seat and hopes that the student has got good enough vision not to run into the tree line uh but Handled really nicely, very mm-hmm. light on the stick, very light and roll, uh, proportionally heavy as you diverge from trim airspeed and pitch, uh, and very sensitive rudder, but I had to say heavier than I expected. But it doesn't uh, it doesn't give itself over to, uh, you know, accidentally displacing the rudder too much while you're on it. Cross mm-hmm. and crop dusting run. So, right, right. One of the things I so um, I, the they had a, a similar, if not identical, aircraft to the one you flew was actually on display in the static displays in the exhibit areas um, at AirVenture, and uh, I was I was looking I, I was you know kind of looking it over as cool airplane. The thing one of the things I found I don't want to say amusing but but notable. All right, is that this this relatively high tech airplane, big turboprop engine, the whole thing. All right. Yet it runs the pump for the uh, sprayer, all right, is run by they stick a little pinwheel down into the airstream, all right, that uh, that spins in the in the uh, in the wind going by and and powers the pump. Am I right about that? Is that the way that works? Oh, that's kind of a booster to d- send it out the spray bar. Ah, uh, okay. So the spray heads and uh, not everything that you put down needs that, but yeah, that helps it along a little bit and it's free. 
Well, it's probably not free. There's drag, and but I get I take your point. Okay, it's, it's well the whole airplane. If you take a look at everything that hangs on that airplane, uh, the spray bar with the little heads and all the yeah, uh, probably uh, a little bit of drag there stanchions. Uh, yeah, this isn't this isn't meant for high fuel efficiency. Although the airplane can do about five hours of spraying on one fuel load, mm-hmm. yeah. depending on what you were putting down. Uh, very efficient airplane, though, uh, and so bloody smooth that watching the engine gauges as it fired up, and knowing that when the inner turbine temperature drops down and these other temperatures stabilize, that the engine's running, and you couldn't feel it. Yeah. Wow. I mean, just plain couldn't feel it. Turned off the ANR and the headsets and could hear the air moving from the prop uh, with it in beta, basically. It's beating the air a little bit, but no, almost no sound off the engine and no vibration whatsoever. It was just the smoothest running thing I've ever, I've ever been behind. Hmm. Interesting. Jeb, you're awful quiet. Any, any observations no, no, here? No, nothing, nothing at all. You, you fly at all. These, would you fly one of these airplanes? Absolutely. Yeah. It looks like a lot of fun. I don't know about the going fast, close to the ground part, but uh, but it was a cool looking aircraft. No question about it. Both of them, the uh, Superstall and the uh, Crop Duster. Uh-huh. Well, they both uh, they, the uh, the 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 thrush is set up so that you could do firefighting with it well mm-hmm. as well. And you think about some of the tight spots that it could get in and out of that larger airplanes could not. And I could see it being a real welcome addition to a lot of uh, uh, forestry departments. Right. Yeah. Cool. Shout outs. What do we got here? I, I got I, you, you guys feel free to take one or more of these. I, I, these are kind of things that I put on the list. And I, I don't know if you got shout outs of your own, maybe. Yes. No. I'll go first. Um, I came across this. Uh, I believe it was from our forums and a, uh, a, no, I'm sorry. It wasn't a forums. It was from, it was from the Facebook. I have to admit, I found this on the Facebook, but, uh, a, uh, a friend of mine on, on Facebook, uh, called attention to the Rocky mountain fall fly-in in uh, Colorado, uh, at rifle airport. And, uh, they're having their fly-in on September 20th through 21st, uh, just coming up in a, in a, uh, uh, I guess this coming weekend actually. And, uh, and, and that's kind of cool. It's cool in general, just because it's a fly in in this beautiful country. The thing that makes this particularly notable is that they are offering apparently for the duration of the fly in, they're offering Avgas at $2 and 50 cents a gallon. So, uh, encouraging people to fly into the, to, uh, to, uh, uh, rifle airport and, uh, and enjoy the fly in and get some, get some cheap gas, uh, uh, a, a mutual friend of ours uh, went on Facebook and said, "Bring the tanker you know, and uh, <laughs> fill it." Yeah, up. I was going to say, "Show up late." Yeah, I know, because because you don't get two dollars and fifty cent gas ever. Yeah, I mean, I can't go. What MoGas doesn't cost that little? Yeah, you can't get MoGas for that. Yeah, so uh, the yeah. Uh, Rocky Mountain Fall Fly In at, at Rifle Airport in um, searching for the. Uh, September twenty and twenty one. Yeah, I'm searching for the name of the town that it's located in. Rifle. Is it Rifle, Colorado? Okay. Rifle, Colorado. There we go. There we go. Okay. What else? You guys got one? No, I don't. No. Yeah? I don't either. Sorry, boss. That's yeah. okay. That's okay. Yeah, just take another, you know, 50 cents out of petty cash. A, uh, a, a bunch of episodes ago, we were talking about, somewhere along the line, maybe actually it was while we were at Oshkosh, we were talking about the Redbird flight simulators, um, and I was trying to remember whether I'd ever heard about Redbird flight simulators being used in storefront simulator 
um, arcades, if you will, all right, where the general public could come in and uh, and enjoy flying um, a flight simulator. And I asked listeners to uh, to chime in about this. Um, and and one is trying to. This apparently is not the Redbird flight simulators, but it is kind of interesting. Um, there's a, a program called Flight Experience Flight Simulators, and they have storefront uh, uh, flight simulator uh, operations where you can go in and fly some big iron flight simulators, like apparently you know 737-ish aircraft. Um, they have them in only a handful of cities around the world, um, places like Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, well, obviously a whole bunch of Australias, Singapore, Hong Kong, Bangkok, Kuwait, Paris, Jakarta, and wait for it, Boston, Massachusetts. Coming, Coming to Burlington this summer. Yep, just outside of Boston, Burlington, Mass. is going to have one of these uh, flight sim centers. And so uh, I'm going to track this down, man, and see if I can get get me some 737 time. That would be I don't it, know. And it's a Boeing officially licensed product. Yeah, so. And it probably costs like $1,000 an hour to fly this well, foolish thing. And this, this is an Australian-based company, so you know their summer could be our winter. You may have to wait. Oh, I see. That's right. It says it says coming to Burlington this summer. Okay. Anyways, uh, flight experience, flightexperience dot com is the website if you want to learn a little bit more about this. And uh, if you're in Australia, um, the Far East, or Burlington, Mass, uh, it'll be kind of fun. I think there was one more here. Where to go here? I got way too many tabs on my computer here. Um, uh, you know, we didn't talk at all about Oshkosh. Oshkosh was a terrific experience, yeah. um, and uh, it continues. I continue to kind of glow um, as a result of our of our Air Venture Oshkosh experience this year. Jack has a glow. I do. And I'm not the only one. Um, watching social media, watching the blogs, um, pe- a lot of people are, are expressing the same kind of, of, of happiness um, coming out of this year's uh, air venture. And uh, that's very, very cool. We may talk more in future episodes about our, our experience this summer, but we're already starting to think about next year. And one of the projects that I think is really cool, and, and we should get Charlie on the podcast to talk about this, but yeah. uh, just as a little tease, I'll tell you that uh, next year, um, EAA is going to put together a program where they are going to build an entire, I guess it's probably a kit plane, um, in the span of the eight days or the seven days of AirVenture. Yeah, it's a Zenith CH750. Yeah. And uh, my favorite part about this whole project um, is that they're going to have the airplane building equivalent of a kissing booth, all right, is that in order to help people be feel invested to the because not everybody's going to be able to go in and cut aluminum and do whatever you do to build an airplane, they're going to give everybody who wants to an opportunity to do at least one rivet in the airplane and uh so uh and i don't know whether you're going to sign your rivet or whether there'll be a certificate or some sort but uh but uh, you know you'll be able to come in and uh, and and uh, put at least one rivet into this airplane so that you have some owner you know, quote unquote, and ownership. I bet you they let you keep the stem. Yeah, so that uh, <laughs> sounds like a very, very. It's not the first time they've done this kind of thing. Um, they yeah. they've built airplanes in the past in the span of the week. Um, they're trying to break the record, which I think is like you know just under seven days or something like that. Um, they did it at Sun and Fun one year and flew it on the last day of the show. Yeah, so uh, very very cool project. Uh, uh, we're going to follow you know learn more about this and and certainly participated in it somehow uh, when the time comes. But uh, um, already thinking about next year's air venture um because this year's air venture was just pretty cool yeah what else i guess that's it we're gonna stick a fork in it we almost done here that's it uh, I, we done works for me okay. I, I'm done. I, can't, I can't argue i don't i don't have anything else to say 
Well, there's a that's momentous right there. Jump in quick, Jack. Jeb Burnside is a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor in chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. You been working on anything fun lately, Jeb? Um, got the uh, September issue of the magazine in the can, um, and uh, that that came right after returning from uh, Oshkosh. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm still trying to catch my breath here and, and uh, recombobulate things, but. Uh, I've uh, got a few other projects uh, in the works here for the near future, and uh, you might read about them very soon. Cool. And where can people find you on the Internet? Uh, AviationSafetyMagazine.com is a great place to start, JEBurnside.com, uh, net, and sometimes on the Facebook and the Twitter machines. Yeah, and what do you call yourself on the Twitter? Uh, Burnside J. And Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, you've been working. Well, we already talked about your uh, your uh, uh, Superstall article and uh, your Thrush article. Anything else that's coming out soon? Well, I got a boatload of stuff done last week after getting back from Oshkosh for World Aircraft Sales. That'll be out in about another week and a half. And let's just say. I don't remember what any of it's about right now. <laughs> you're like me. You do, I'm, you, I'm a to- you it's it's a complete blank. You're like me. You do a memory dump as soon as it all is all done. Just <laughs> yeah. They, they, Annie asked, they say, so you sent all you 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 fed everybody this month, everybody but two, and they're about done. I'll feed them before the end of the week. And so, uh, what'd you do for so and so? Uh, I don't know. I sent you a note though. I know. Yeah, okay. Well, people- I could remember it. I sent her a memo. Yeah. Where can people find you on the internet, David? Oh, fbuyer.com, aea.net, uh, aviationsafetymagazine.com, occasionally, uh, dub, 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 uh, under a rock at Dead Cow from time to time. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Please check out my latest Kindle ebook, Around the Field, Volume 2. It's the stories of the people, places, and planes of the Oshkosh Fly-In. You can read it on your Kindle device or with any Kindle reader software on your iPad or other tablet or laptop or desktop computer. Learn more about all of my Kindle ebooks at Amazon.com slash author slash Jack Hodgson. I just want to know how long it is you're going to continue to call yourself uh, a, a new media media producer are, are you ever going to be a seasoned or experienced media producer seems or, or, or an old media producer seems unlikely okay. uh you can also follow me on twitter at uh, twitter.com slash jack hodgson uh and finally please sign up for the jack hodgson news email newsletter uh no more than once a week i'll send out information about my publications and the other projects i'm working on uh, when we're producing new episodes of this podcast and others um there's a link you're not, to the, you're not getting into like who you're dating or anything like that and you know, well you know or maybe you had you know, for dinner. Or the, the, the day may come when I'm short for material, so I. You know, <laughs> and you know, Jeb, I think that new media should be hyphenated, a new media producer as opposed to a new producer or a media producer. Unfortunately, the hyphen's silent. You can subscribe to my newsletter uh, at the link that you'll find at uh, uh, on jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. And uh, that's just more than enough for now. A big thanks to Jeff Ward for his help with our show notes and in the forums. Thanks to uh, Jeff and Jim Goldman for their help at the tie-down party this year at uh, AirVenture. They were invaluable. They took a big, big load off of our shoulders. Uh, don't forget to check out the rest of the UCAP website. You can chat with us directly and with many 
of your fellow listeners in the Uncontrolled Airspace forums. You can see who's doing, and you can also see who's doing what on the new ratings webpage of fame and much, much more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, you were going to say something? Time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan, and that's not the best reason I can think of going flying. Bye-bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. So saith Roadkill Jack. <laughs> that better not stick. That's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs>